Hello, Modern Woodworkers Association podcast listeners. It's me, your second favorite woodworking podcast host, Ben Strano from Shop Talk Live, reminding you about Fine Woodworking Live April 26th through 28th at the Southbridge Hotel and Conference Center in Southbridge, Massachusetts. It's a fantastic show. I don't need to list the presenters because it's a who's who, but I do need to tell you, it's a great chance to buy Diami Plotkia beer. So head on over to findworkinglive.com right now to register and get ready to hang out with Diami Plotki and buy him beer. Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Hi, and welcome to the 239th episode of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. I'm Sean Wisniewski of the Corner Workshop, and I'm here with my co-host, Kyle Barton of Waterfront Windsors. Tonight, we're visiting with Joshua Klein of Mortis and Tenon Magazine to talk about what they're up to and the upcoming Fine Woodworking Live Conference. Guys, how are you doing? Good. Doing good. Good. Doing good. Yeah. Excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, before we uh, dive into it, um, let's see if anything uh, piqued our interest out there. Um, I wanted to mention um, Yami couldn't be with us tonight, but he did have something, a Kickstarter that's out there um, with a interesting product called Planners. Yeah. Uh, there are these neat little uh, uh, urns that um, you can actually grow uh, plants uh, on top of. So it's kind of like a two-piece thing. They're all made out of wood in different kind of geometrical shapes. And uh, the first, uh, the lower part, I guess, houses the ashes, and the upper part has a little little uh, area for plants or succulents, it looks like, is what's growing. Yeah, their, the, yeah. their tagline, I think, sums it up beautifully. Handmade modern wood cremation urns that double as a decorative planter. Yes, that is. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so, it's a it's a unique look. It's it's yeah. cool, kind of kind of modern, edgy shapes, um, but you know, uh, most you know some wooden, some look like maybe painted or acrylic versions as well. But that's uh, yeah, I looked at that too. They say that's a, a speckled maple, so it's probably some sort of dyed maple. Okay, yeah. Look at the bigger picture. It looks like yeah, it's, but it, but it does look like it's kind of a marble type mm-hmm, <laughs> looking mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Huh. Hmm. Yeah, it looks like they're just starting out. So, uh, yeah, they have, so. they have ten backers as we record this. So get out there and if it's something that yeah. you know strokes your back, go ahead and help yeah. them out. Yeah, it looks like this is uh, being made by a woodworker out of Los Angeles, uh, Catherine Boyce. So, yeah, so it's out there on uh, Kickstarter, and again, that's Planterns. Plant U R N S. So. Um, like Sean said, if it sense, sounds of interest to you, go ahead, get out there and uh, help support them. Get after it, absolutely. Now, what do you got in here, Kyle? What is this Crucible news? Uh, yeah, Crucible came out with their card scrapers. I think we mentioned that on the last podcast. Mm-hmm. Man, they sold out within two hours, and uh, they had a, a new batch, and I'm not sure how fast these sold out, but I know they sold out pretty quickly, but I was able to get one. <laughs> so um, I are, got one of are those. they are they delivering 
already? I mean, was that? Yeah, I think they're shipping. Um, I'm not sure exactly when. I think I ordered this a couple of days ago. So maybe maybe when I uh, get back from uh, the Texas Woodworking Festival, it'll, it'll be here. But uh, it should be interesting. Um, I think I mentioned before this is based on a card scraper by uh, Chris Williams, the uh, uh, Welsh stick chair maker from um, from. Uh, England and um, and I'll be interested to uh, to try this out because I basically when I was in the class with him copied his shape and I've ground my own so I'll be able to uh, try the DIY version versus the uh, crucible manufactured version. Hmm. Nice, nice. Yeah, what what's and I'm, I haven't read up on these yet. Why why are they that kind of tombstone shape or not even tombstone? They're just a they're, I don't know yeah. what do you call that shape. And they're kind of rounded. Well, yeah. uh, a lot of chair makers um, use the rounded card scrapers to get into uh, chair seats, and oh, you know, the, okay, the seats are saddled. But uh, this one works equally well on flat stock too. Um, I saw some posts that uh, Christopher Swartz did, and uh, he basically, you know, was outlining the design of these scrapers. And from his opinion, you know, traditionally card scrapers were sent to you square and uh it was up to you to you know put the shape in that you wanted so um mm. so card scrapers weren't supposed to always be that you know classic rectangle shape um it's and you know rested there because yeah, of mass yeah. production <laughs> yeah and i have you know i have a nice uh, really curved scraper that i got from uh bearcat um that makes some nice scrapers and i love that one and uh, also have the uh uh, um, scraper that you know I, I copied off of uh, Chris Williams, which I really like. I also have the DMT scraper, the real thick one, and I've also ground a curve onto that that I think uh, uh, is really nice too. So, but you know, we'll see. The other thing I wanted to mention was about the Crucible Holdfast. On our last podcast, Diami and I kind of talked a little bit about their product line, and we mentioned. And had a little discussion about their holdfast. And would you believe it today um, mm-hmm. on Lost Art Press blog, uh, Christopher Swartz put out a about a 10, 11 minute video on the Crucible holdfast and how he came up with the design. And, um, you know, he's posted on this before, but it's a nice little 10 minute video on the holdfast. So uh, you can find that over at Lost Art press on their blog site and uh i watched it uh, actually a few minutes ago and it's pretty informative <laughs> uh so what what is unique about their design it looks like that really beefy yeah it's I, and he goes into that and he goes into uh, about why the the hold fast has a rough texture it's a, made of a ductile cast iron and mm. it's inch thick basically and, um, you know, it goes in some of the challenges they had in actually manufacturing it. And, uh, you know, it has a little good demonstration about just how well this cinches. And, you know, you know, as he put it much more eloquently in the video, is they could have come out with the standard three-quarter inch holdfast, but they just do not hold as well as the big uh, one-inch ones. I don't know, Joshua, if you've ever had a, had any experience with the, the bigger holdfast versus the uh, standard three-quarter inch ones. Um, I uh, Just a few times mm-hmm. I was able to try a larger one and, you know, uh, so I can't say I put it through all its paces, but it, it held really well. Uh, I'm used to the three-quarter size 
personally. Mm-hmm. So that's all I that's all I know for sure. I I I've got the who the Gramercy ones. I think they are. Yeah. I'm almost positive they are. Yeah. And um but my my top the best top I have, bench top that I have is two two sheets of three quarter ply. Mm-hmm. So a glued together inch and a half and they grab fine. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Everyone's different, I guess. Yeah, I, I have the Gramercy. I think those were the uh, the kind of <laughs> that's what everyone kind of bought. They they worked well and a uh, good price point and oh uh, yeah, they were great. Yeah, yeah. And I did actually have to rough rough them up a little bit. I had to oh, s- did you sand them with some eighty grit sandpaper to get them to stick? But um, I've been happy with them. But you know, I was able to try out the ones that um, uh, Crucible is selling. And they do hold much better, much, uh, you know, mine hold fine, but usually if I'm working on a piece of stock, I like to put two of them on there just to make sure the mm-hmm. piece doesn't spin. But with uh, the ones that Crucible sells, I noticed just one is all you would need, <laughs> you know, and it would not spin. Right. It's yeah. just a, you know, you got to make your little padded leather foot for these yeah. big, beefy things just to make exactly. sure they don't mar the hell out of your whatever you're holding down. Yeah, or you know, top it or have a sacrificial board. You put yeah, the board thing. You, yeah, I like the ones that you just have a strung around it, so that it can swing out of the way or swing in there. It's just on the post of it. Yeah, what I have done is I took uh, some little square pieces of maple that were maybe oh three sixteenths, not quite a quarter inch thick, and uh, glued some leather onto one side of them. Okay, and use that under the holdfast. But you would am- you would be amazed at the number of things I've been able to utilize those things for. Use them for calls for clamps, so the clamps don't mar, mar anything. <laughs> you know, all kinds of uses. <laughs> hmm. But uh, yeah, I forgot who first. Uh, I think it might have been um, Shannon Rogers that first uh, talked about doing something like that. I went, hey, that's pretty. That's a pretty good idea. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I found all kinds of use for them. Hmm. Oh, pretty cool. But with that said, um, so uh, what's in the shop, Sean? Nothing. I just got off spring break, and I got <laughs> jumped right back into work. And as I told you right before we started this, I've spent all day either in my car or in meetings today. So, yeah. Yay. So how was Florida? <laughs> oh, Florida was beautiful. Love Good. being out there on the golf side. I, I, I waved at you at one point. I, I guarantee you didn't see me. Uh, it was a long way away. <laughs> yeah, a little, but, uh, little, little far, a little far. A <laughs> little far. Yeah. Yeah, so so whereabouts were you? It's uh Sanibel Island. It's off the coast of Fort Myers. Okay. On there. Yeah, that's southwest Florida area. region. It is. It's very nice. I heard it's hellacious in the summer. Oh, I can um, imagine. Yeah. But uh, with bugs, because the cool thing about it is half the island is a uh, almost half the island I think is a nature reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, excellent. So yeah, there's a ton of wildlife everywhere, and. Uh, and I mean, good fishing, good shelling, and and it's just it's awesome. It's a really cool place. If you're ever in the in the area, yeah. check and it out. Is that the that's the area that has a nice powdered white sand? Correct. Yeah, uh, it's not powdered. It's mostly actually rough shell. Oh, really? Uh, okay. There, there, there is powdered sections, but there mm. are mats of heavy shelling. I think pretty much it, it, there are places on the island where legitimate, not just landscaping, but walking paths are completely shell Mm -hmm. just crushed shell which i'm sure is common anywhere i have never lived by the water but uh you can take a you can take a scoop of your hand through the sand and you're coming up with shells 
Yeah. Like pieces and parts of them, but I mean, it's a, uh, you know, we were finding, you know, starfish and sand dollars and, and all these, you know, clams and different conks and, and lightning whelks and all these other really cool things. Um, but it's just, it, it's littered with shells all cool. over the place. It's really cool. Really cool. And because it's on the, I don't know, is your side of the Gulf real active? Wait, like wave wise or is um it, not I mean, so on much the there's a little bit i mean we got some some guys will go out there and and try to surf but usually they're surfing uh between jetties which will kind of amplify some of the waves <laughs> but i mean you know if we get any kind of storm coming in oh man they're just all over the beach <laughs> oh, see, yeah because <laughs> that's the only time we get any really decent waves when storms come in yeah so th- this way but like there's like almost no waves to speak of most of mm. the time there it's yeah. super calm it's it's beautiful yeah. and then when the wind kicks up it gets interesting but there's a sandbar like 50 yards off the off the beach mm-hmm. and but you can walk there the whole way to it it's just super cool yeah super yeah fun. But yeah. you're spoiled because you're in the you're on the Galveston side of things. I'm sure you, yeah, but you get to see that, that crap all the time. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But our <laughs> our beaches aren't quite that that nice. But they're they're nice. They're okay. But they're more of a traditional sand mm-hmm. color. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is it is yeah. definitely a whiter sand. I mean, I had to, yeah, I had to and squint. Wa- and the water, I imagine, there is a lot clearer than it is here too. It it is until the weather. The it yeah. wasn't raining, but it got windy. And so mm-hmm. then everything got churned up pretty good, and it was a little, little murky. And they've got the, uh, what do they call it? The red tide, which is a, mm-hmm. a red algae. That's, mm-hmm. it's, is that all over, or is no, that no, 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 only on that area? Yeah, well, I think it can happen just about anywhere, but yeah, okay. it's probably more common there. Yeah, yeah, it it wasn't there. We went there last year, and it wasn't. Um, but this year, it definitely mm-hmm. was. It was kind of. Kind of crazy because depending on the tide, you had to muck through ankle high, just algae. Yeah, that was just on the on the shore. There it was kind of crazy. I guess last year at some point throughout the summer, it was a big problem, and I somebody came out and and helped clean a bunch of it up because they were killing fish by the thousands. Oh yeah, yeah, they that were just, That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, we we get uh, influx of uh, seaweed sometimes that can pile up on the beach and the public beaches. They have these big um, uh, tractors that come and scoop it all up. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, wow. Yeah, it's a, it, it happens uh, happens every year. Uh, golly, someone's going to kill me. that's listening to the podcast, but I want to say it's um, uh, it's a specific type of seaweed. But apparently, there's a bunch of it out there. Um, Saragos or something like that. I'm, that's not it. I know I'm mispronouncing it, but it's a type of seaweed that just comes in here, and it's and it, it's it's not problematic. But you know, as far as swimming, if it hits you or anything like that, it's not poisonous or itchy or scratchy or anything of like that. But it will pile up on the beaches hmm. and st- start to stink. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway. anyway. But, That's not interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Back to the woodworking podcast. Um, so, how about you, Kyle? What have you been working on? Well, I've been getting back into the shop after after my little uh, break and um, uh, building a uh, Windsor stool. Another another Windsor stool, a little bit different than the ones I have been built. So, I uh, I turned some legs. And, um, this is bar height stool. So the legs are, the leg lengths were about 30, uh, two and a half inches long. 
And so that was big fun trying to turn those. Um, I did last month break down and buy uh, one way. Um, what do you call those things? Uh, the um, uh, spindle. Ah, why don't I just look it up? I one forgot. way spindle. What are you talking about? Uh, you know, I bought this thing. You think a spindle steady? <laughs> so it's like oh, a oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Type yes. thing. Yep. Yeah, but uh, one way calls hers the spindle steady, and uh, you know, it was a hundred and thirty-five bucks or so, something around there. And uh, I was like, should do I need it? Do I need it? Do I need it? And I went ahead and and. Uh, Decided to go ahead and get it. And I tell you, that thing was a lifesaver on those long <laughs> 30 plus inch uh, uh, legs. Hey, mm -hmm. uh, it really does make a difference. I didn't realize how much of a difference it would make, but it really did. It is a pain in the butt moving the thing back and forth and all that. But uh, the results are spectacular, much better than I was getting um, before. And, um, where before, you know, the legs came out fine, but I did have to do a lot of sanding. I'm still not quite good with the uh, with the skew chisel, but I think I'm good enough to where I just need to sand it with some 220 and I'll be done. Mm. <laughs> so, okay. just a light yeah. sanding. Yeah, but that's not bad. I'm yeah. getting better. I'm getting better. But, you know, um, sorry, Joshua, wasn't a spring pole lathe or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Tanner no motorized one. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> So, Joshua, That's what cool. have you been working on besides uh, packing up magazines and mailing them out? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, mostly uh, this last weekend we just shipped out issue six uh, of Mortis and Tenon. And so we had a big party, a bunch of, you know, 30 people volunteered um, and they drove and flew in from around the country to come help. Uh, so, honestly, I've been recovering from that, mm -hmm. uh, picking up all the pieces, sweeping stuff all over the place. Um, but, uh, right before that, leading up to the event, I was, uh, attempting to finish, uh, another dining table. Um, the upstairs of our workshop, uh, is our office study shipping slash dining room <laughs> for our parties. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, I had another dining table I was trying to finish up. Um, and it's a tavern table style, colonial style. Um, so I dropped all the mortises, was starting to cut tenons and, basically just ran out of time before the party started there was just there were too many pieces to to get in line so i will have to finish up that tavern table uh soon here for the next event but um yeah i, I love that form uh breadboard and yeah. top you know it's mm -hmm. classic simple but lots of cool. mortise tenons work it's fun yeah now is this a commission piece or no this would be a, a dining table for the shop um, okay it, it stays up so basically between packing parties and workshops and stuff like that um it's right next to our library here upstairs so it's sort of a library table until we pull out the food <laughs> and hey. the dining table <laughs> <laughs> or shipping for shipping you know or whatever it's, yes it's yes. a small operation here <laughs> <laughs> well cool well um well let's get into to a little bit more about you so um tell us a little bit joshua about your uh, uh background and uh how you came into this wonderful hobby. Yeah. Um, well, uh, basically I started, um, you know, thinking, you know, back, if you go back to high school thinking, what do I want to do with my life? You know, what kind of mm -hmm. life do I want to live? Uh, 
and uh, I pretty quickly realized I wanted to work with my hands. Um, and so I actually went to a school of luthery and pursued that. And long story short, basically ended up um, trying to find my way, trying to find the thing that uh, fulfilled what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. uh, and I went to a school called the National Institute of Wood Finishing, uh, a school that Mitch Kohanek taught. Um, and he regularly teaches still at Mark Adams School. Um, and so I learned from Mitch furniture restoration, furniture conservation. Um, and so I am coming at woodworking from that perspective. Um, when I moved to Maine with my wife, I launched a furniture conservation studio here in, in rural Maine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, go figure. I actually was able to pay my bills. And it was, it was pretty amazing to be in, in rural Maine and have a furniture conservation uh, practice. Mm. Um, but there are enough people up here with a lot of antiques that uh, they cherish them. And so, uh, so it was cool. So basically, my woodworking uh, was, it started with, you know, building the guitar at the school um, and then repairing antique furniture. But once I was having this furniture apart over and over, I, you know, I would look at the joinery and look at the construction and think, whoa, what is going on here? This is so different from, um, you know, the guitar school I went to was uh, very focused on uh, jigs and setting up machines to do the operations. So that was how I was introduced to woodworking, that kind of woodworking. Mm -hmm. and, all, and all this antique furniture I had apart looked like it was from another planet. I mean, it was not mm -hmm. even close to what I learned. It broke all the rules I was taught. And so I thought, wow, what is going on here? And what I saw over the years uh, restoring furniture, I just kept seeing stuff from all over the, the country, all over the world. And right. it was all like that. It was all coarse on the undersides and there were undercuts and clearly intentional undercuts and all these marks under there. I thought, what is it with this stuff? How, how, <laughs> how can you even build a piece of furniture of integrity, something that's lasted 200 years and look amazing on the outside, super tight joints? And then on the inside, you see hatchet marks. I mean, how can it, it just blew my mind? <laughs> yeah. And I just got obsessed. I said, I got to figure this out. And so that was the beginning of my, my woodworking uh, obsession, trying to figure out, trying to retrace uh, that process. And that, that was the cool thing about it is there, there really isn't a whole lot of guessing with this because, mm -hmm. you know, if you've heard um, uh, art critics discuss the, the, uh, brush strokes of master painters and they can right. read into things. They say, Oh yeah, this person was X, Y, Z at this time. And you can tell in the brush. I mean, it's just like that. You can look at these tool marks and say, wow, I, I know exactly what tool made that and how aggressive that cut was. And it's, it's all there. All that evidence is there, the evidence of the process. So I just started trying to reproduce that. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background. That's, oh, I came cool. into it from conservation and, yeah. and got got that way. Well, you mentioned about, you know, being a bunch of antiques in Maine, you know. Uh, on YouTube, I follow, was it Thomas Johnson? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what, Gorm, Maine, I think. Yep. And uh, and uh, when you said that, you got in a registration. I was like, oh, yeah, that other guy's in Maine, too. And he seems to have a ton of work. So, um, yeah. yeah, that's kind of interesting. So are you on the uh, mandolin craze? I hear that's uh, on Instagram that's all over. Everyone's building mandolins. Oh, is it? 
I've yeah. done a few of those, yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I missed that. I, I mean, I saw a few of my buddies are making mandolins right now, but I'm, I'm not sure how far it's spread. But no, I haven't made a mandolin. I made oh. uh, an acoustic guitar, a 12-string acoustic. Oh, cool. I had a very short stint also after school in Nashville, Tennessee at a custom guitar shop. Cool. And I made a hollow body Telecaster copy there. Um, but that's it for, for musical that's instruments. Nice. Uh, did that one sell or do you have that? No, I have them both. They were for me. So. Oh, cool. That cool. cool. Yeah. That, that is nice. That is nice. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's another person I follow on uh, YouTube is crimson guitars. <laughs> He's a electric uh, guitar builder out of uh, England. But anyway, Oh, well, well tell us a little bit about, you know, you started Mortis and Tenon magazine. What about, Four years ago, three, four years ago, something like that. Yeah, three or four years ago. I think the, the seed of the idea was four years ago, and mm-hmm. you know, early twenty sixth, January twenty sixteen, or something like that. Issue one shipped out. Mm-hmm. So, now this is like a uh, basically a semi annual magazine or journal, as you might want to call it. Um, and I mean, some of the articles and the uh, contributors you get to the magazine are just incredible. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's mainly from a hand tools perspective, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, the the uh, you know, it, it's just amazing some of the people you get in there. Now, now, how do you get your contributors? And um, and I, I notice a, a lot of the uh, uh, a lot of the people involved in the magazine are are, are folks we all know and love. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's amazing. I. Yeah. Um, basically, the, we don't take submissions. Um, you know, we publish twice a year, so we're not doing. It's not like six times a year or something. Mm-hmm. We're, we're, you know, you know, chasing a lot and trying to get as much as we can. We're, we're basically are doing twice a year, and so all of our articles are, are, almost all of them. We're reaching out to the people that we know are doing awesome stuff that um, fit in with that issue or, you know, something we want to do anyways. Um, so it really is just sort of, uh, we're keeping tabs on stuff that's interesting to us and pursuing people that are, uh, writing about what they're passionate about. And we say, wow, you see, I, I'm talking to Mike, Mike Optograph, who I work with, you know, we're, we're mm-hmm. both watching and we say, Hey, did you see so-and-so? Yeah, they're making this thing and we should, we should reach out to them. They're really saying some interesting stuff about it. And, um, that is, that is pretty much how it goes. Yeah. Um, so, so does each issue have like a, a general theme you're trying to uh, to follow? Um, not consciously. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, I wanted to make it open enough. I mean, frankly, you know, a lot of times uh, we've talked with people that they said they had this idea uh, that this article they wanted to write, uh, and they've pitched it a couple times different places, and and nobody was interested because it's too obscure. And mm-hmm. so we said, yeah, that's it. That's what we mm-hmm. want. So, <laughs> so basically, you know, when you're working in that kind of uh, sphere of articles, it's really hard to have like a unified theme. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing that I um, feel pretty strongly about is um, I'm not very comfortable telling an author, we want you, hey, can you write X article? Can you do this? Mm-hmm. Because we want it to come from them. We want it to be right. burning inside of them. And they have to write this. And we say, yep, that's that's going to be a great one. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to, to steer that into one particular theme. That said, usually some uh, continuing theme uh, seems to emerge. 
Um, yeah, because so, that's the impression I get from reading them. It's like, hey, these these articles, these uh, all seem to flow together in kind of, you know, a gestalt type way, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. I can't yeah. say that was conscious. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we do what we can with all the material we have, and we try to make it a cohesive presentation, but mm -hmm. uh, we didn't tell anyone what to write. Uh, so, yeah. Now, um, now the the magazine, so you can you can um, you know purchase these as they as they come out, or you also offer a subscription, correct? Yeah, correct. Yep, yeah. we have back issues on the website. Um, we, you know, as you mentioned, you know, we're it's kind of like a journal. There is an mm -hmm. advertising. It's sort of more of a something we intend for people to keep around as a reference on the shelf. So. Uh, we do have back issues. We we print enough so that we have them for a few years at least. Uh, mm -hmm. Issue one is is sold out. It's gone, but um, the other ones are there. So, and then you could just sign up for a subscription too. So oh, when fantastic. you when you were talking about putting this together, how much of discussion was based on what is current publishing and and you know the audience you're going to reach and all that? Because you know in in the recent ish times you know when chris schwartz was still with with pop wood or f and w i mean woodworking magazine was his kind of little pet project of let's do less advertising let's do more detailed higher work let's not listen to so much what people want we'll just give them what we want to show them um yeah was that was that part of your i guess i guess what drove you to to start this during during that time i mean as we're seeing publications kind of changing hands and mm -hmm. you know you know su subscriptions are dwindling or whatever it is i mean it's a different landscape now yeah um uh chris is a good friend of mine um and he's been very helpful to you know give me some advice about the publishing industry of which i you know really don't have any training in or anything like that mm -hmm. um that said, I, you know, I, I didn't read his uh, publication before. I know him more through Lost Art Press. Um, mm -hmm. it, so for me, it really came out of um, what I was looking for in particular uh, in my interests, you know, because as a conservator, I was reading all this, all these uh, uh, historical books and all this historical research from curators. And then I was reading woodworking literature. And then I was reading conservators, uh, you know, academic papers on, you know, their stratigraphy analysis and stuff it was it seems like three totally separate spheres and i thought wow i wish these these three places would kind of pool their their insights together to understand what pre-industrial craftsmanship is and what it was like and there's so much to learn from each of these things so um that was it and then you know i just i never really liked advertisements personally oh. uh <laughs> so uh i just said well if i'm going to put a bunch of time and energy in my life and something i want to make it the thing i would want to read mm -hmm. um so that's how we set it up um, no it's, it's i i didn't mean to to question you too much i think it's awesome honestly. yeah <laughs> i mean it's it's fantastic and it's exactly I, I, what i would be looking for yeah i mean i think the, the thing is I, I i when issue one came out i had a bunch of people in the publishing world tell me kind of laughing and they like yeah you're crazy we, we like it <laughs> but you have no idea about the rules of publishing because you've broken pretty much all of the rules of publishing i was like mm -hmm. really because i don't even know what the rules are i just mm -hmm. make the thing i want to read so 
apparently there are a few other people out there that are interested too. So yeah, I don't know. I, I it's probably not a uh, marketable. This strategy is probably not mass marketable, but it works for our little niche, I guess. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I just, I just recently heard a, um, uh, interview with a guy that's good friends and I forgot their names, but the guy that, uh, that started Tito's vodka and Sam Adams beer. And, uh, he was interviewing both of those and he came away from both interviews saying, you know, if you have a product, whatever that is, and you want to put it in the market, you got, you got two things you got to do. You got to do something that you love and you got to do it to the best of your ability and don't worry about anything else. The market mm-hmm. will find you. There you go. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. So absolutely. And I thought that that was kind of interesting. And that's, that's definitely what you've done here. Um, but besides a magazine, you've now ventured out into the podcast arena. <laughs> yeah, kind of. I mean, uh, <laughs> mostly it was just, uh, well, if you've read the, the publication, you can probably get a sense for we're pretty low tech people over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I, I live in rural Maine uh, intentionally, and I like just being back in the woods and milking my goats and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but, uh, so yeah, the podcast was basically readers were interested to learn more. Um, people were emailing us questions and specific, very specific questions. Hey, I have this hand plane and it's having these problems. Can you help me? And we just were trying to figure out how do we, how do we help people? How do we mm-hmm. uh, share with people in a, in an easy way that's accessible and is informative. And, um, you know, honestly, the, the business, it, it is somewhat ironic because this print only publication about hand tool, you know, woodworking is primarily driven just by Instagram and blogs. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's how we reach people. So mm-hmm. through that, we found that to be useful. And then, yeah, this podcast, uh, we get emails about the podcast regularly. Um, honestly, for Mike and I, um, the the digital media um whether it's a podcast or blog or instagram it's really peripheral to what we're trying to Mm -hmm. do um but it's a way to continue to give back as much as we can because twice a year you know six months is is kind of a long time Mm -hmm. so we try to keep people uh, you know keep sharing so yeah i mean have you seen your engagement grow or is it current current readers that are the people downloading your podcast and kind of staying still like that um, you know, honestly, I don't know. I, I, I don't really follow the, um, any of the, the charts or whatever. We're just, we're, our podcast is we have one microphone, one recorder. We turn it on we stand shoulder to shoulder and we <laughs> talk about a topic and we just stick it online and walk away. I have no idea, honestly, who reads it. I see a little number of how many have listened, uh, but yeah. I don't know how many or who they are. <laughs> no, yeah. Because I mean, yeah, it's hard, like <laughs> hard to be matched them up like yeah, that. No, yeah, no, it's just. Just interested to say, like, since you started the podcast, are, are you are you getting more orders for issues? Yeah, you know, are you reaching different people that way? I'm sure that is the case. It's hard for me to draw a direct correlation. You know, that said, the Mortis and Tenon has been growing very fast, and it's actually actually I just wrote a blog post the other day uh, about how it's somewhat distressing to me because we we really <laughs> like it to be small and simple and easy and ship right. it out of here and. It's it's growing a, a lot, and so we're trying to figure out okay, how do we stay true to who we want to be and the kind of business we want to run um, as it's growing. And the packing party, you know, we had thirty people here for two days straight, wrapping magazines to get them out to subscribers. 
Um, and we're, we're seeing the, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot more every, uh, shipping every party. So we're trying mm-hmm. to figure out, we're trying to figure out how that's going to work. <laughs> so it's, the podcast is definitely not about trying to get more subscribers in, in any sense. We're trying to, trying to put the brakes on some of this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, well, for any of our listeners, it is a great podcast. And I encourage you to go out there and download it and give it a listen. It's a Thank Mortis you. and Tenon podcast. So, uh, Find that in your favorite podcatcher. So there you go. It is. It is good. So with, with all this background, so this brings us to Fine Woodworking Live. Now you're actually giving a uh, presentation there. In fact, you're giving, I guess, basically the morning keynote. Yes. What in the world? I don't know how that happened. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you get for doing something that was for you and other people found interest in it. See, and they're like, "Well, this guy's an expert on what we want to hear." <laughs> yeah, or if you just get into something so obscure that no one else cares about, you're like the only one who cares about it. It's, you're the, you're exactly. the guy. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. I I can't believe I'm I'm so honored to be invited to to be a part of fine woodworking live. I mean, that's that's really awesome. Is that um, one of those things where you say like, yeah, I guess I made it, right? Like, uh, <laughs> honey, uh, I'm famous. <laughs> well, yeah, it's. I mean, it's it's weird. It's weird to be looking, you know, interacting with fine woodworking to talk about the presentation I'm going to do. And I mean, I've I've never had this kind of thing before in my life, so I'm um, I don't take it for granted at all. Um, and I'm just excited that what they reached out to me for, they want me to talk about the thing that I'm passionate about, and I'm just so grateful for that. Um, cause that's, that's pretty much all I know, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty focused person on, on what I'm into. So, um, I, I think well, so, it's an honor. Yeah. So what are you going to be uh, speaking about? Um, well, it, it's the, the title, the, the theme of the topic is, uh, pre-industrial woodworking in the 21st century. Um, and, or maybe a better title that I'm exploring is <laughs> pre-industrial woodworking for the 21st century. Um, and the reason I say that is because uh, I, I think that what we, what Mike and I do through Mortis and Tenon, um, it's not only hand tool woodworking, but it's pre-industrial woodworking. Where we, most of the tools we use are, you know, 150 years old or older, um, or copies of them, and. It's, I think a lot of people think of the way we work as um, as pretty narrow. It's just focused on the past, this one little time period, and, and you know why can't these guys embrace the thing, all the things that are available today? Um, but what I want to talk about there is, uh, I see it differently. I see it that um, we are looking at the way human beings have made things from the very beginning up until. 200, you know, 150, 200 years ago. Um, and so this, what, what we're tapping into is something that is, uh, very, very human and core in the way that we work. Um, and so we have a lot of great benefits since the industrial revolution and, um, particularly in health and, uh, some, you know, mechanization and automation have given us a lot of things. Um, but, uh, we all know that the, the 11 hours a day that we average as Americans sitting in front of screens um, isn't 100% good for us, that we do need mm-hmm. to get our blood flowing and we need to get out and engage with the world. And so the, the, uh, 20, the pre-industrial woodworking for the 21st century, the, the for the, is that there is something in um, 
non-mechanized, simple hand tools that is is uh, a balm for us in in this knowledge era. It's it's a way to to re-engage with the tangible world and to exercise skills to develop these things. So that's kind of the the heart of what I want to talk about. Um, And I think part Mm -hmm. of the thing I hear, um, we get... We definitely get some pushback on that. Some people say, oh, you know, can't you just embrace machinery? And um, I think the reason, there are so many things that we find value in that. And I guess the, the question that is that this talk is kind of revolving around in my mind implicitly is, um, but aren't hand tools slow? Because <laughs> <And, laughs> we hear that a lot. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. my first answer for the past few years, my answer has been based on period records and the tool marks from furniture. And my attempt to reproduce those things is, wait a minute, hand tools actually are not slow at all. No. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very counterintuitive, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, people assume that machines were invented because hand tools were so slow. But actually, machines were invented so that mass production could happen, not yeah. That you didn't need force. a skilled worker to exactly. operate the machine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah, so that you, yeah. you know, the one cabinet maker wasn't miserable that he had to plane all those boards. It was right. when you want to make a thousand tables, you know, then you then you uh, mm-hmm. most machines. So the first answer is they're not actually that slow when you're only making one. But the second answer I've been thinking about recently is the whole notion of efficiency presumes mass production. Um, but you know, how many of us uh, woodworkers in this country are doing it to make a living? You know, a growing we, few. A, a grow, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so that's, I think it's amazing when people are making a living building furniture. I want more people to do that. And that's great. I think head tools have a place in there. Um, mm-hmm. but particularly what I want to point out is, you know, what we see is the value of, um, physical, sweaty, bloody knuckled, uh, hand tool woodworking that engages the mind and the body and is complete. The outcome is completely dependent on your skill to guide that simple tool. I mean, that is like taking all of the, it's like, uh, you know, people going for a hike up the mountain, they climb Mm -hmm. all the way up to the mountain, they're sweaty. It's taking them 10 hours. Nobody gets to the summit and says, well, that was a stupid idea. I should have just drove up the backside on the road. That would have been a lot better. They say, this is amazing. I can't mm-hmm. believe myself when I got this. And for me, that's what woodwork, pre-industrial woodworking is doing, is it's challenging my body and my mind, and it's uh, it's pushing me to these things. So um, I think that's a, a good thing for 21st century woodworkers to to experience, at, at least at some time, uh, mm-hmm. to it's yeah, I mean, my, sh- my shop, I have plenty of machines, but uh, the greatest joy I get is, you know, with the draw knife. And yeah, my, yeah, yeah, uh, I love I love draw knife work and, um, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I'll use I'll use my machines to get everything, you know, uh, planed and uh, trued up. But uh, after that, yeah, I, I love shaping stuff by hand. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, basically, I just, now, 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 Sean, on the other hand, enjoys <laughs> you know four squaring boards by hand, correct? I uh, when I can, yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the the problem, well, the, the problem, the difference is that I don't do a bunch of work, so I'm not like producing, yeah. you know, furniture, I you know, on order or even 
yearly, <laughs> you know. Um, but absolutely, I mean, hell, I've made a cornhole board by hand, you know. <laughs> I I I cut, planed, drilled everything by hand, you know. It's I I I love that. Yeah. And and for me, it's because I don't have to go fast and fake. Frankly, mm-hmm. I think it's safer to not have to go machine fast. Sure. Um, but. You know, and I people look at me with cross eyes. I'm like, yeah, no, no. Do you know what a bow saw is? Yeah, I have two of those. Why? What that? What? What do you? I'm like, so I can rip boards. Like it works great. Like, yeah. Oh, okay. I guess if you're into that kind of thing, but I am. (laughs) So, uh, but no, yeah. I mean, that's that's. I mean, right up my attitude. You know, my alley. I I have from I record in my basement, and I have my dovetail tests. Or really, it was more like practice it wasn't even tests and i just cut a i cut a one by four up into four inch pieces and for like a month straight i cut a dovetail joint a night mm-hmm. just to kind of work on that and i yeah. love it. i absolutely love it yeah well you know it's interesting too because um one thing i uh i always want to make sure to be clear about is um you know what i'm not saying is um hand tools you know, people who use hand tools are the skilled people and machine people aren't skilled. That's not no, at all what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, um, no. But, but what's really, uh, what I find fascinating is there's this uh, philosopher, John Rawls, that he talked about what he just, he was looking at Aristotle's teachings about um, uh, fulfillment in work. And uh, he coined the term the Aristotelian principle. And he was talking about the Aristotelian principle says that uh, when someone has the skills to, to do different, to do something different ways, um, they find more satisfaction in doing it in a way that is more complex and challenges them more. And so he would say a person who, who can play chess and checkers finds more fulfillment playing chess than checkers. Um, and so, cause they're, they're challenged in that way. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it makes me think a lot about, um, David Pye and his uh, workmanship of risk, workmanship of certainty thing, because it's kind of getting at the same thing. That uh, workmanship of certainty, you know, is um, is utilizing uh, fences and jigs and, and that kind of thing to uh, ensure a measure of uh, certainty about the outcome, and uh, that works really great for mass production or for high high precision. Um, but then the workmanship of risk is more something like a hatchet or a very coarse, coarse plane or something. And mm-hmm. it's, it's much more dependent on the skill and dexterity of that maker that, you know, if you're hewing with an ax to a line, there is a lot that can go wrong. And so you're completely dependent on your ability to guide that. And so that's the chess versus the checkers. Um, and so I, I think that those things really come into, to playing. Now, um, the, what Pi talks about is that this is a continuum, not that there's a category of tools that are risk and a category of tools that are certainty, but that all tools are on this continuum. Um, so even a hand plane has a degree of certainty and regulation. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's that kind of idea of, you know, we've all seen certain people with, whether it's woodworking or other crafts that we see them working with such fluidity and, and um, it looks like it's just natural. We say, they're a natural. They're so amazing. How can they just do that? It looks like it's easy. And we're in awe. We say, man, that's so incredible. Um, and that's exactly, I think, the idea behind the workmanship of risk or the Aristotelian principle that 
you know, you're, you're using simple tools to accomplish incredible things. And so for me, I'm not saying I'm there. I'm saying that's awesome. <laughs> and I, that's what I want to strive for, you know? Right. Uh, so that's for me so much of what this is about. And the, the physical, uh, I know I don't have a gym membership because I'm a hand tool woodworker. And, and I think that, and I think that whole picture is is so satisfactory. So when I see that finished table standing there, I say, "Wow!" I remember every plane pass, every saw cut, and I busted my butt to build it as efficiently as possible. And it's that whole picture is just so fulfilling. So yeah. there's yeah. there's a t-shirt. Well, well, that yeah, that is very somewhere. well said. Very well With said. The uh, you know these abs created by hand plane or you know or <laughs> something something like that like okay, or, or or that same thing i don't need a gym i i work by hand or you know somewhere well, there's there's a product that you could sell uh, yeah sure is yeah mike uh mike Optograph, his article in issue six um that just came out uh he was talking about sourcing your own lumber and green woodworking and he called it the radical efficiency of green woodworking which is a provocative <laughs> title you know yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and so the, the first picture on there is this massive red oak log that he's riving in half. You know, it's like, um, it's awesome. And his article is incredible. It's so good. Um, and so one of the things he talks about is, um, you know, when you're, when you're, he talks about the wattage to fire up a table saw, um, to get it fired up, it's like 4,500 watts and to maintain it, it's 1,800 or something. And he talks about the whole supply chain and what it takes to accomplish the ripping of a board, you know, just the energy. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but your old distant is bagel powered. You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> and he talks about the, the energy efficiency of that and that, you know, it's still five times more efficient, even though it's a, it's a little bit slower for that one cut, the energy efficiency is through the roof. So all that is just so fascinating to me, um, to that humans are pretty amazing and what we can accomplish. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and that's very interesting the way you're framing that, you know, the uh, uh, pre-industrial uh, techniques for the 21st century. Yeah. I uh, will say I like the yeah. in the 20th century because it's it it is it's not the these skills of old used today. It is it, it's these skills of old being used today in spite of the technology. Yeah. And I, I yeah. mean, the thing is, I would I don't think of these things as old technology no not at all these things have way longer track record than anything else that's oh yeah in the past couple hundred years so this is mm-hmm. just like in my frame of reference this is woodworking um yeah. and the most recent development is through uh mechanization and automation but this is the way it's always been for a long 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 time mm-hmm. so yeah i think we've we've um We've forgotten a lot of that, and yes. I think think work by by you and many others are helping to bring back some of that. Uh, well, I guess as Chris Schwartz would say, lost arts. Yeah, <laughs> sure. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that, I believe you have a book that's put out by Lost Art Press. Yeah, exactly. Good segue. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. My book just came out in was it August or something? I guess it was shipped to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a book that. Uh, I've been working on for five years, um, researching the cabinet making of an 18th, early 19th century uh, woodworker on the coast of Maine. Uh, Very long story short, uh, I was doing conservation work and had a bunch of my clients say, 
oh, you should go to the local historic house, the old Fisher house, because, you know, he made a bunch of his own furniture. And uh, just a little bit of window into the the furniture restoration world, uh, we hear that all the time. We hear, <laughs> my grandfather made this, and then you see the factory label underneath, and it's, you know, it's it's a very common thing. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I was a little, little skeptical, a little cynical. Um, and so I thought, well, sure, yeah, I'll, sometime I'll stop by. And long story short, after a little while, I did stop into the, the house. It's, you know, it's five minutes from my house. I stopped in, and um, the president of the board showed me all the furniture and told me about this chest of tools that exists in, a, in another collection nearby. And then he said that 35 years or so of this guy's daily journal records are in the archives upstairs. Oh. And, I, and he recorded everything he did every day, including oh. his making his kitchen chairs and building this plane and visiting Mr. So-and-so and turning candle stands. And I thought, oh, what? what? Uh, I mean, you know, so my research into um, or my reading of uh, other curators and historians looking at this, that, that sounded pretty unprecedented to have furniture tools and daily journal records all together in the house the man built. Um, wow. And it's been it was five years of digging deep into it. Um, when I, um, I ended up, Chris Schwartz came up for the Lee Nielsen open house and I invited him. I said, Hey, you might be interested in seeing this because, you know, totally random. I feel like it's random, uh, connection after I was already deep into researching this. Um, I, the president of the board, I was in the archives for months, just reading papers and letters. And I mean, the archive, I will never in my life get through. It's, it's enormous. It, it brims with letters and stuff. Um, and I was reading all this stuff and the, the president of the board came in and he said, oh, hey, you know, there's a tool maker that is a descendant of Fisher. So oh, that's cool. That's neat. You know, so yeah, he's, he's a main actually. He's a, he's a main tool maker. I said, oh, that's really cool. I'd love to connect with him. You know, it'd be cool to see if he knows about this or whatever. And he said, yeah, what, what was his name? It's like Nielsen or something. Um. Like, like <laughs> Lee, Lee Nielsen. I was like, you're kidding. Wait, what did you? What? Tom Lee Nielsen is a descendant of Jonathan Fisher. He's like, oh yeah, yeah, Tom, Tom Lee Nielsen. That's it. Yeah, he's been up and he, you know, he loves this place. And I was like, whoa, oh my gosh, what a weird connection. And so, uh, yeah, I reached out to Tom, and he said he knows the house and knew he was a descendant, but didn't know that Fisher, yeah. that there were tools around and all that. So I took Tom and Deneb and and other people and, and Chris Schwartz uh, also. Uh, we took him up, did the tour, and Chris couldn't believe what was there, which was validating to me because I felt mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm I'm not sure if my perspective is skewed because it's so close by to me. Yeah. Um, but he said, let's do a book. And so the book is basically looking at his furniture making. Uh, it's looking at his tools, all these journal records, 1798. He was mm -hmm. in Massachusetts, and he made this plane and that plane and this, and then he brought the mandrel for his lathes back. It's, you know, it's all there, every yeah. little and the planes are stamped with 1798 J. Fisher, and the the uh, molding profiles match all the molding in his furniture and his house. I mean, it's it's such a complete picture; it's unbelievable. So, so the guy definitely sounds like he was very, as we would say, anal retentive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he definitely was about certain things. Did you get any sense about uh, about the man, about who he was, uh, how he fit into the community, friends, 
neighbors. And and that is one of the unbelievably rare things about this is Mm -hmm. it's not just having this material culture left behind, but all the stories about who he was and what his worldview was, what his frame of reference was. He took Mm. comments on all these things. He was a minister. Um, it was his full-time vocation. So he, uh, he wrote all these sermons and he talked about, you know, comments on the community and stuff. And so I know what made this man tick. It's not something I'm trying to read between the lines. He said, this is what makes me tick. And he (laughs) made it all out. And he talked even about the work of his hands. The name of the book is hands employed to write. And it's a reference to there was a Fisher was, um, was haying and he he's writing this down in his journal. He said he was, he was, I think he's cutting hay and he stopped and he looked at his hands and he said, uh, hands, what a blessing they are when employed to write. And it it ties in this whole thing of this manual labor and seeing this as, you know, it's like the the head, hand and heart thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's he's this minister that has this heart reference, uh, you know, living his life before God. And then he's got this manual labor thing. Um, and he's, he's also, he's an unbelievable intellectual, went to Harvard for his ministerial training and all these journal records and all the notes of the geometry drawings that I mean, it's, it's, he's like a Jeffersonian polymath, you know? And, and so what that was, that's what was so cool is that he was so well-trained and so intelligent and he, he just, uh, describes how he decided he felt called to this rural backwoods, dangerous, um, ministry. And so it wasn't just that he was, um, you know, some backwards dude, he went out there to do this, this, this work. Um, and so what does furniture look like by somebody who builds their own clock, of course, when they're at Harvard and does all this meticulous, fastidious little work and is really anal, retentive and, uh, loves mathematics. What does their furniture look like on the frontier of Maine in 1798? You know, mm-hmm. and that was the question I was so curious about. And you know what? It looks like just all the rest of it. You know, like the outsides looks nice and clean, and the insides, like the backboards, are straight from the sawmill. No wow. whatsoever, straight from the sawmill, hand wrought nails driven right on, done. And it's so in the book. What I what I wanted to do with the book was to provide more construction photography than typical uh, historical monographs of cabinet makers provide. Mm-hmm. A lot of those uh, academic books, they show some of it, but not enough of it to satisfy woodworkers. We want to see the guts of this stuff. And so um, I took a lot of pictures of joinery and the insides and backsides and all that to show this is, you know, kind of put yourself in his shoes. When he was making this, what did he prioritize? And it's really interesting to see his mix of, in some areas, this very, very fine, particular work. And then the back was, you know, I think a lot of people would say it's it's atrocious. It's just very rough. Mm-hmm. And it's because he was practical and he was trying to get the job done and he knew it did not matter what the back looked like. Um, so that really helped me. You know, I saw all that furniture in my studio and I saw from different makers, different anonymous makers, they all looked this way. But to see it in one story and to know who this person was and what made them tick, and even someone so particular would make it this way, it really helped me. It cemented for me that, yeah, this is actually just what hand tool woodworking looks like. It just is this way. So 
So um, how did he make his living? Was it just a variety of means from both his ministry and farming, it sounds like? And for yeah. Hiking? Yeah, he had a uh, he received a very modest ministerial salary because it was mm-hmm. frontier territory. Um, and so he used all these other skills he developed. He was uh, he learned surveying. And so he got paid for that. He made hats. He uh, did a lot of woodworking, various woodworking things. He painted houses. He was doing sign painting for different things. Um, and he would write uh, broadsides and little books. He would publish his own books, of course, like you do. You know, it's just <laughs> Uh, well, you can and, say that. We can. Oh, that's, that's true. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Uh, but, you know, it's he did everything. Uh, and it, even, you know, so I was curious. Like, to me, that seems incredible for someone to do. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, I live in the 21st century, so I don't really have a frame of reference for what – is that just kind of somewhat normal? Or, what, like, you know, I don't have any frame of reference what to think about him. And even his contemporaries – they all said, wow, Fisher gets so much done. He gets up so early and he works so late and I can't believe what he did. So um, it truly was incredible what he, what he was doing. And uh, it, it's amazing then to, to look at the furniture in that broad context and say, wow, okay, this is what a person uh, works like uh, in, in, you know, historically with these tools. So, uh, Not joking. I just ordered the book. So. No, thank you very much. <laughs> that sounds that it sounds amazing. It really does. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it really. It was funny because um, Don Williams, who did the Studley book, um, mm-hmm. Don's a friend of mine. And when we were, um, I took him through the Fisher House. I think soon after Chris came through, and Chris said he wanted to do the book, and then I had Don and uh, his wife Carolyn up, and. Uh, so we were going through the house and he said, this is going to be great. This, this story is incredible. I can't believe it's here. Um, a lot of other, you know, historians were saying the same thing, like, well, how come we never knew about this? And, and then Don said to me, he said, five years, plan five years. I thought, what? No mm-hmm. way. I mean, it's a lot yeah. of stuff, but I'm sure in a couple of years I can bang it out, you know, and because uh, it's just, it's all right here. Just got to put mm-hmm. it together. No. Nope. Hmm. Years later, there it is, and so he's right. It, this stuff takes a lot of work. So thank you for <laughs> thank you for buying my book. <laughs> no, I'm I'm not kidding. Like that that is awesome. That that is that kind of stuff is what I I wish I would have grown up anywhere in New England because that would be so much closer to me. Mm-hmm. Like I I I I got interested in this craft uh, early-ish in my 30s and. Uh, I, you know, I read what I could and found what I could, but in Midwestern, Northwestern Ohio, you know, there's not a whole lot of that history. There's history that yeah. goes back eh, maybe 150 years. You know, yeah. it's not that old. And and there's nothing of note as far as furniture goes. It's all what other people did somewhere else and brought here. So that that is that that story sounds fantastic. And they act hmm, well, very, it's, very it's, interesting. It's, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. Mm. And uh, I had the the same experience, although I will say in my uh, my little circle, my little sphere, you know, ancient antiques were like 1950s. That was like super <laughs> old. Oh yeah, um, I mean, like the, the antique furniture around here is J.C. Penney from the 40s or 50s. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, when I met my wife and she was from coastal Maine, and I came up here, I was like. 
holy cow, this stuff is really old. Now, of course, <laughs> somebody from England is snickering right now uh, to think <laughs> oh, of something sure. as 200 years uh, as old. But, um, you know, compared to what I was used to, I can't believe it. Um, but for me, it really is like um, the difference is not so much a particular time period in my interest, but the different ways of working. And, and it really, the Industrial Revolution what, was a revolution. It shifted the whole frame of reference for a lot of people. So mm -hmm. if it if something was made before that time period, I'm really interested to see how they used those tools to accomplish uh, their vision. For sure. For yep. sure. Yeah. I mean, like my area, you know, we, I live outside of Toledo, Ohio. We're known as the glass city. That was definitely industrial revolution making yeah. this sure. area, you know, emboldened during that time. Uh, but I'm very proud to have an 1890s Stanley plane in my yeah. collection because that was, that's the industrial, you know, revolution that I want to know about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's the stuff. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a fascinating book, and uh, Lost Art Press is going to put me in the poorhouse. Um, I, <laughs> I, I told that to Chris. I, I won't deny that I'm going to have to explain to Chris my wife time, price um, time, but, uh, And he's like, there, I only have so long to live, and i got to get all the books out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so it. are you going to have, uh, if I'm working live, will you have uh, copies of your book there? Yeah, I'll have copies of the book there, and you know, if you okay, I'll pick mine up there. Yeah, I'll get an autographed copy. So yeah, yeah. If, totally. if I get mine in time, I'll make sure either Diami or Kyle have it so they can get it signed while they're at Fine Woodworking because I can't make it. But uh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Be happy to do that. Happy awesome. to do that. So, um, one one other question I had about. Uh, Mortis and Tenon magazine is the pictures y'all have in there. Are y'all do y'all take most of those yourselves? Uh, yeah, that's I mean, uh, some of the articles uh, that are done by our authors they provide the pictures. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the but, photography skills y'all have are just outstanding. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> um, it's you know, I what the Mortis and Tenon came out of a blog that I was doing, yeah, uh, in the past, and uh, so I you know, I was learning how to do photography and learning how to write and make this succinct little presentation of a thought, you know, and I thought, I'm just not really into blogs much anymore. And I want to, mm -hmm. I want something more substantial, more long term. And so, yeah, the photography and the writing and the woodworking for me, I, I, I was thinking like, what could that be? Like a, a print version of a blog, you know, where you like write stuff and you take pictures like, what could that be? Oh, that's a magazine. <laughs> you know, so that was how it came to be. So yeah, I'm interested in all aspects of that. Um, so yeah, yeah. I was just wondering because um, I figured you you were that you know y'all were taking those yourselves, but I mean you know some of the way y'all frame those things are just so artistic. Uh, the one picture I always uh, that that when I think of Morris and Tenon is the one with the uh, hand kind of cradling the draw knife. Oh yeah. The, the cover of issue three. Is that yeah. 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 And uh, I, I love that photo. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much. That was Kenneth Courtmeyer's hand. That was upstairs at the Lee Nielsen open house uh, right before Saturday morning when it started. And <laughs> I was like, Hey, Hey Kenneth, we got to get this picture. He's like, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you, Tom, for letting us use your space. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah, there you go. 
Well, so um, what's upcoming for for yourself, whether that be for Morris and Tenen or anything else you got working on? Okay, so it's not enough that he's producing a, a you know biannual magazine. <laughs> no, he's it's not storing enough. furniture. He's a keynote speaker at a, a national podcast. conference. He's got a podcast. Yeah, what else is going on? Well, it's been over a year since they updated any YouTube videos. <laughs> oh, Uh-oh. yeah. You you want to know actually why that is? I, I'll tell you. Because they started sticking advertising all over the place, and I was like, "How do you control this?" And then, and then we, yeah. And then I put a, um, I used a song. I like purchased a public, or I used a public domain song that you can use for those videos. Mm-hmm. And then someone like claimed that it was a copyright infringement, so they put an ad on it. I'm like, "What? I, I'm out of here. I don't know what's going on with this stuff." <laughs> YouTube, I was so bummed. YouTube is about making money and yeah. making money through ad revenue. And so in the modern era, people yeah. are using YouTube and YouTube wants people to use YouTube as an economy. Yeah. So I, I, I bowed out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, fair I don't fair enough. Fair enough. I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, you can well, share videos so, on Instagram for free. Well, and we have a, a Vimeo account because I was about to we, say Vimeo. Yeah. We have instructional videos that we they're actually like hosted through Vimeo. So you can stream them when you purchase them on our website there. You can stream them through Vimeo. So. We could mm-hmm. post on our video page too, but you know, it's kind of busy. <laughs> so. <laughs> but 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 seriously, is there anything upcoming that you'd like to promote? Yeah. Um. Well, I mean, you know, I, I I would say I would say everyone needs to go out and come to Fine Woodworking Live to see your presentation. But I got an email this uh, this week that said they only had twenty slots left, so it looks okay. like they might even be sold out by today. Well, there's there's a few. Get on it. You check into it if you haven't. Yeah, you got time. You got time. You got time. You, you, you got any minutes. Listener, any listener, unless they're already going, yeah. uh, and I'm excluding myself because I can't go, but any listener that isn't already going, check to see if any of those 20 seats are still available. And find, if there is, get one. Yeah, yes. it's, an, it's an incredible event. You it really is. Should. It is. Um, uh, but, but besides that, what am I up to? Um, basically, Mike and I are talking about a few different book ideas. Well, we're working on a particular book right now, but it's it's so early that we aren't really talking publicly about the you know the aspects of it. Um, but we do plan to work on some books, um, sort of long form versions of the the kind of stuff we talk about in M and T. So are be, these going to be books you publish yourselves, or are you going to? Probably, yeah. Just because yeah. I. I feel like we're in the groove now. Um, mm-hmm. We just, it's just, uh, I mean, there are a few different aspects of it, but I do all the design myself on my computer upstairs in the shop and I, I'm comfortable with it. So um, yeah, probably we would do that ourselves. Um, but yeah, so that is upcoming. But then also the, the thing that we're just like so excited about is we just are this summer, we're going to try our first uh, workshop here in our in our space and um so we're gonna have six students out uh the third week of june and um it's gonna be we're very excited about it uh it's basically just sort of a it's actually a work exchange so they're gonna come and help us uh work around the shop and we're gonna do uh, teaching them it's a five-day thing and so it's no tuition and people are sending in applications and it's sort of. Do you know what uh, Outward Bound is? Have you heard of that? I've heard of it. I don't know much about it. Yeah, Outward Bound is sort of a an outdoor hiking 
uh, organization that's the whole idea of what they want to do is uh, using hiking to, you know, facilitate personal growth and mm. discipline and challenge and that kind of thing. So um, it's not just about you know, like survival skills or something. Mm. It's it's about challenging yourself and working as a team. And so that's kind of the heart of our workshop is outward bound for woodworkers kind of. Oh, cool. Um, and so, yeah, we are uh, solidifying our uh, six students right now. And, um, and we're really looking forward to it. If it goes smoothly, um, we'll, we'll plan to do some more in the, you know, next summer, but we just kind of want to test the waters with one right now, work out the kinks slowly. Mm. So May, yeah. keep, keep doing this for about uh, eight years. When my kids are out of high school, maybe I can come and do one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it's going to be cool. It's, you know, it's, um, we live in the woods here. So it's sort of like, you know, everyone's going to be camping in the woods and we'll have bonfires and it'd be, you know, it'd be a fun thing. So mm. sounds awesome. Wow. And no Wi-Fi. <laughs> and no Wi-Fi. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Turn off your phone. Yeah. Totally. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. That yeah. is that is awesome. Yeah. Well, with that, let's get on to our fortnightly beer choices. Yeah. What do you got, Kyle? I got. Um, I'm a big fan of Carbock Brewing here, located here in Houston. I was and lucky enough to find some of that while I was in Florida. Yes. Yes. And uh, Sean even said it was great. It was good. It was good, and I'm a big sponsor, but I did try their Hella Cella, which is a spicy cerveza. Picture a lager beer teamed up with a spicy Bloody Mary. Mm. Yeah, I'm not a big fan. So, <laughs> um, I love Carbock, but this one just didn't do it for me. Maybe it'll do it for you, but uh, I've done just, spiced, I've done pepper beers, I've done, yeah, you know, I've done the who's a um, uh, Ballast Point does a bunch of like habanero sculpins and stuff mm. like that. There, and so I mean, there's like that that heat on the back end. But when you say Bloody Mary, are you saying like that pepper and tomato mix in yeah, there? Kinda, sorta, kinda, yeah, kind of sort of, kind of sort of. Yeah, I mean, it has some heat on the back end like you're saying but mm-hmm. yeah just it just didn't do it for me and and maybe it's all and it could like i said you know it's a personal thing and uh, it might be just me and maybe i would feel that um you know about any of the spiced beers but this is the only one i've had and just not a big fan yeah fair enough fair yeah enough. so sean what are you so uh yeah i picked this up after getting back from florida we had to refill our fridge and uh <laughs> i saw <laughs> i i saw this i hadn't seen it before uh it's uh fatheads which is an ohio brewery i don't know how far they they get um but they did this collaboration they call uh special operations so it's a a uh, I like that <laughs> an ipa uh, with fatheads and barley browns uh brewery and it's uh it's a good good pretty smooth not terribly bitter ipa uh rather enjoyable a little, little darker, um, uh, but it, it, it's very good. So if you get fat heads, look it up. I have no idea. That probably is a limited release. I I found it at a Kroger, probably. so it's probably not I that bad. I get fat but... heads here, but yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I don't know about that particular. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I'll you, look you, for it. You yeah. probably get the, the, the bigger ones, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Yeah, just like when you found the Carbock, you got their two most popular. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, Joshua, Josh, how about you? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I 
uh, we just had the packing party. Uh, yes. So we uh, had a few beers uh, from a local brewer that I just absolutely love. Um, the company is Strong Brewing Company. Uh, Al and Mia Strong run it. Um, and they live uh, not far from me here in Sedgwick. Um, and their beer is, uh, it's all over Maine. So when you come up and you summer in Maine, you vacation in Maine, uh, make sure you look for Strong's Brewing Company. Mm. Um, and I really love their Soul Patch Porter. It's nothing like uh, tomato and pepper. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good uh, standard. They have a lot of, uh, they do a lot of great Belgians. Um, and they actually have a Gosa, a, a, what is it, Paul Revere Gosa or something. And oh, love I, a Gosa. I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm into it. So, yeah. They're really nice. great. Strong, strong brewing company. Come I'll on to the to sour for, side. That sounds familiar, but I don't know if they distribute this far south or not, but it sounds familiar. I have to look for it. Yeah, you should look them up. I like that their name is strong and it's not a Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I feel like if your name is strong, you have to start a brewery. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty good. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Well, so um, with that uh, out of the way, where can folks find us on the interwebs? Uh, Joshua, where can folks find you? Uh, well, at mortisandtenonmag.com. Uh, okay. spelled, spelled the American way, Mortis. Um, yes. And, uh, I mean, through there you can find us, you know, also on Instagram and Facebook and all that kind of stuff too. But, um, yeah, the website is the, where, the way you can find the, the publication. All right, great. Sean, how about you? Uh, I'm Sean Wazuski. I'm at SeanW78 on most every social media, uh, except for Facebook, where it's my natural name. Find me there. And uh, let's see, Diami's not here tonight. You can find him at penultimatewoodshop.com. Well, modernwoodworkersassociation.com or MWA. I forget how it's done, but at Diami Plotke, hit him up and give him hell for not being here tonight. (laughs) And uh, Kyle, how about you? Uh, you can always find me on Instagram at barton.kyle, and that is the only social media platform that matters. And with that said, that just about wraps it up for this show. So if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play Music. Just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association, then you'll never miss any of our exciting episodes. And while you're there, please leave us a review. And I just read Sean's part. So with that said, thank you for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association. If you like the show, please sure to visit us at modernwoodworkersassociation.com. You can follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national or on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast. The best thing you can do is tell a friend. Word of mouth goes a long way in sharing our discussions. So with that, I encourage you to go out there and order a book called Hands Employed All Right, The Furniture Making of Jonathan Fisher. And if you never have, cut a mortise and tendon by hand. <laughs>